finding startups is is finding new talent. It's this. It's not very different than finding new bands or new artists who you think are going to resonate with the public, who have a great idea, who have something special about them. This is Tectonic, the podcast focused on the people and passion at the intersection of technology and health. An unlikely pair, Brian Smith and Jerry Harrison, came together over their shared passion for science and medicine. Together, they're helping entrepreneurs find their rhythm and chart a path to success. This is Tectonics. I'm David Shewitz. And I'm Lisa Sunan, and we're grateful to GE Ventures for their sponsorship today. GE Ventures, multiple paths to big impact. So, David. Yes, Lisa? So, David. (laughs) Is music one of those things that drives your behavior, changes your behavior? If you had a walk-up song like the baseball players do, what would it be? You know, um, I probably thought too much about this, but... um, what I really love is um, the Sharon Robinson version of Leonard Cohen's Everybody Knows. Oh, I Jesus, think that's, that's obscure. Cool. Okay. Uh, I'm going to go with Bad to the Bone myself, so there we go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're all ready for wrestling. <laughs> so, uh, and speaking of music, uh, we have some interesting guests today. Yeah, Brian Smith was going to be the next Tom Brady, but when that didn't go exactly as planned, he took a path to the money, eventually joining Morgan Stanley as a wealth manager. But a tragic incident and a chance meeting with a device company sent him straight towards medicine and entrepreneurship. Meanwhile, in Wisconsin, Jerry Harrison was going to be a scientist or a technologist, but took a left turn along the way and became a key member of the bands The Modern Lovers and The Talking Heads. No, really. He was the keyboardist and guitarist and wrote many of the best songs. Unbelievable. But for his, <laughs> but for his love for science and technology was always present and led him to find ways to marry those with entrepreneurship. Brian and Jerry met through a mutual friend, and the rest is history. Today, they're the founding team of Red Crow, a crowdfunding platform that connects financial and human capital to healthcare startups. Welcome, guys. Nice to see you here. It's nice Thank to you. be here. We're lucky to have them in the studio today live, which uh, we don't always get to do. Uh, so I have to say we've had a few financiers on our show, but never anyone who was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. So can you guys tell the origin story of how you met? Yeah, sure. I'm happy to start, and thanks for having us. So Jerry and I met several years ago when I had just moved from Boston and originally uh, went to Seattle first. And Jerry had produced a band called Live in the 90s, a big album called Throwing Copper. But Jerry actually produced their very first record called Mental Jewelry. And I became um, a fan of their music in the 90s when I was 18 years old. The, the first video played on 120 Child. Minutes, <laughs> if you remember that, uh, when there was actual videos on TV. And I just I, that band resonated with me. It was a bunch of guys out of York, Pennsylvania. Anyways, had always known, as I became more and more familiar with the band, that Jerry Harrison from Talking Heads had produced them. What's interesting about Talking Heads is that a lot of their greatest stuff came before I got into rock and roll and alternative music. Yeah, I was in the middle of college. I remember yeah, it very, too. very well. <laughs> yeah, and, and we hear <laughs> that. I hear that a lot. Yeah. And, and, and so the music you're talking about, that was really the 90s music for me. So I, uh, I knew Jerry and I knew the band. I really knew Burning Down the House because that was the video that I first probably saw in the, in the 80s and kind of when I was getting into MTV. But when I moved to the West Coast, um, having been friends with Chad, uh, the guitarist from Live, he said, I need to make sure you and Jerry... Uh, get to know each other. And he said, besides, Jerry needs a new friend up there. <laughs> and I thought, all right, well, this is great. And what happened very quickly is uh, I got to know Jerry as an entrepreneur and somebody who had done some pretty pretty cool things outside of music. And so um, he he started talking about some of his early endeavors, and um, we hit it off. 
So, Jerry, you grew up in the Midwest but went to Harvard. It's like, David, another Harvard guy for you. In architecture and design. But you left to join the Talking Heads, which is a not exactly a cl- direct career path. How did you find your way back to technology? Well, when the Talking Heads uh, became really inactive in the late 80s, we made our last studio album in 1980s. Well, we recorded it in 1987. I believe it came out in 1988. And I was also just releasing my second solo record. So I had also been producing while I was in the Talking Heads. I had produced the Fine Young Cannibals, the Violent Femmes, the Bodines. And uh, so I knew that I liked that. And that kind of was an outgrowth of making my solo records where I I wanted to give myself enough time to explore things in the studio. One of the things I think I really learned about from Brian Eno was to think of the recording studio as an extension of the... of uh, an extension of the rec- of the composition process rather than a merely a capturing device of whatever you performed at that moment and i my mother my father died quite suddenly and my mother who had had cancer was then left alone so i i started splitting my time about 50/50 between new york and where i grew up in milwaukee and i found a little recording studio there in the basement of actually what had been one of my best friends in nursery school's <laughs> bedroom, which is also a bomb shelter. There you go. <laughs> and um, uh, he had tragically died uh, uh, just after high school, and my friend, but his younger brother had this studio, and he was a very talented engineer. And so he was doing commercials, and I said, we don't lose any business, do that, but we'll work at night, and we'll work around your schedule. And so he gave me an amazingly favorable rate. <laughs> about the cost per week is what one uh, per word one day in New York, eight hours cost in New York, and that gave me like this sort of this gave me this palette and a sort of collaborator, and so I worked for a long time on exploring what became Casual Gods. We spent a few years. I wasn't totally delighted by the way my voice sounded on the Red and the Black, and that made me feel more and more confident as a producer and being able to do what I wanted to do in the studio. So after the Talking Heads became that inactive, and then after I realized that I did, I had already spent a lot of money on my own supporting a band to support my own solo work, that I just wasn't quite in the place still having a new family and a new child to necessarily be um, on the road all the time trying to slog it out to oh. sort of rebuild the performance side of my career. And I think I was also getting pushed by my wife to be more of a record producer. So we started going, well, are we going to go back to New York? And she had a very uh, um, frightening experience with my daughter. It was in the midst of sort of the AIDS crisis when really nobody quite knew knew everything about transmission. And a homeless woman tried to stuff bloody bread into my one-year-old's mouth in, in New York while, in the other hand, was my... Um, I think she was in a stroller, and, and the other hand was my son, who was three at the time. And I think my wife was pregnant. She goes, I don't think we can do three. So we began to think about where we would live. And I had a number of friends from college who had moved here. Um, one, of the, one of them in particular, John Mazuris, had been a founder of the company MIPS. And then, I was, then Will Hurst, who has this new album, Alta California, which I highly recommend, and there's a very nice interview with me in it uh, two issues ago. And 
And I went, also, all of the synthesizer manufacturers are out there who, being the keyboard player in the Talking Heads, I'd gotten to know. I'd gotten to know what had become the beginning of uh, digital audio, of recording on computers with, mm-hmm. with Digidesign and Diaxis, which were based here. So I went, there's more opportunities if being a producer in music stops paying the bills. So let's go to San Francisco. So let's catch up with also how Brian wound up um, uh, out here. So you grew up in Boston, go Sox. Um, <laughs> and, um, uh, and I think saying, this time of year you have to say go Patriots. Yeah, we <laughs> Or go Bears. I'm going with that. Um, so you grew up in Boston um, and had a plan to play football, but your uncle apparently played for the Raiders and talked you out of it. How did you wind up from that? contemplation to becoming a startup CEO? Well, yeah, football was certainly, uh, as a youth, just my passion. It was everything I loved. Um, And I love the game. I don't know that I would necessarily say I'm a fan or a fanatic. In fact, if I'm not in in, in the luxury box or on the sideline, I really don't care to go to a a professional game. (laughs) And you're not going to see me wearing the team player's jersey with some other guys. I don't think I've ever seen you in anything but black. Well, that's, yeah. Um, But I love the game. and He's not going to be in the dog pound. Yeah. uh, That's funny. Well, you know, when we lived in Seattle for a little bit, and I talk about, you know, you think Boston fans are rabid. The Seattle fans are pretty crazy. <laughs> Paul Allen built that amazing stadium for the noise, and, and it's deafening. But for me, I think the quarterback position was something that I always liked. Um, I got to watch Doug Flutie growing up in Boston. Oh, wow, yeah. So my uncle, who played for the Raiders, actually played with him. And, you know, he was the underdog. And to watch what he did um, at the size he was, it was all heart. And even what he did in the pros – and it's more about the leadership that takes place to, to be in that position. And having played that position through my youth and my college year, I mean, my high school years, I had an opportunity to go to college um, with my size being 5'11 and 185 at the time. It was Division three schools, which were really no scholarship. There was some financial aid, but I was going to do it. And I'll never forget my uncle had just retired from the Raiders, and he pulled me aside, and we went to dinner, and he said, so here's the deal. He's like, I went to Boston College on a scholarship. If I didn't get the scholarship, it's just too much on the body, having just finished up with the Raiders. And this is long before any of these awareness of the concussions and, and what can happen. To that was body. still the Jack Tatum era, though, wasn't it? Well, he was, um, he, he, so he was more Howie Long, mm. um, Marcus Allen, yeah. um, the Walter Payton era. So really just pre-coming into this mm. concussion thing. And he's been, in fact, part of some of this um, – concussion protocol wow yeah so anyways um he his advice was take a year off um if you still want to play then go walk on on a division three school you know your second year and what i realized is i got it out of my system and business started to be uh something that became very attractive to me and what i have learned since is that the leadership skills um management of being a quarterback transcends into being an, an entrepreneur and you know, I'm reading a book called The Roller Coaster of an Entrepreneur. That is really what the position of, of playing quarterback is, even in from play to play. One play can be great. The next play, you, you think you've, you've just lost the game, and then you come back. So the play that you had a lot well, – I know you spent time in wealth management and in you know, finance in various ways, but you found yourself uh, becoming a CEO of a startup, but it's a pretty personal story. Is that one you can share with us? Yeah, about? I'd be happy to. Uh, Lisa. So uh, my wife, Jessica, and I, 
we're expecting our first child in, in 2003. And coming from a very large family back east, big Irish Catholic family, I have 33 cousins. I had never experienced um, anything go wrong with somebody's childbirth. I do think my grandmother, who had 10 children, had a miscarriage along the way. But we had a situation where uh, we ended up giving birth, uh, Jessica, my wife, um, to our little girl, Juliana, at 24 weeks. She was one pound, six ounces, and it happened sudden. We were rushed to Brigham and Women Hospital in Boston. And I had the chief of newborn medicine, um, Dr. Steve Ringer, pull me aside and say, this isn't looking good. She's probably going to be born. But we couldn't get steroids into the lungs, which usually is what helps keep a baby alive that early. Yeah, exactly. And so um, it was a tragic situation that we went through. You know, we had just started the nursery and it blew my mind that this could happen because I've heard in miscarriages, but to give birth and lose your child. Um, and it was devastating for the family. But it, I appreciate that. But what ended up happening is I got very involved, as a lot of people do when they go through something like that, with organizations to fight the cause and to bring awareness to the mission. And this mission was prematurity. Um, helping labor and delivery to be safer. So I got involved with the March of Dimes, sat on the board in Boston. And just by default, I ended up with clients that were physicians while I was at Morgan Stanley. And there was this commonality. You know, wealth management is all about trust and trusting your financial advisor, feeling like it's someone you can talk to just beyond money. And one day a client brought this new fetal monitor device to me that was coming out of Tufts and MIT, said they were trying to raise money. And that they had hit a wall and thought maybe I could uh, help them with my clients at Morgan Stanley. Quickly, we all learned if Morgan Stanley wasn't representing the investment, there's a conflict of interest to be able to ask clients to take money out of their Morgan account and go into a very high-risk investment. And so that's when the, the light bulb went off and I decided I wanted to leave Morgan, that there was a bigger calling for me to help this type of company. And, you know, that's the, that's the start of it all, Lisa. That's awesome. So, Jerry... Um You've produced dozens of albums for bands like No Doubt and Kenny Wayne Shepherd Live and on and on. Um, is producing a company in any way like producing an album? Yes. I mean, it, it is because you have a disparate group of people and you're trying to get the best efforts out of, of everybody. And you also are trying to keep, you might say, the team together. At least this is a very essential thing to me when I've produced a band, is that bands very often have sometimes a very one or two, one person or two people who are very dominant who sometimes lord it over the rest of the band. And when they're on stage and they're playing on stage, there's, there's a bit, it becomes more equal. But in the rest of the life of the band, one person maybe is more articulate or more, or he writes the songs. Or, and, but I've always tried to engage everyone in the band, even if I don't think and find that they just make some suggestions someplace. And I often invite them all to come to the mix and at least give their comments, and even if it's rejected. But most of the time it's something... I mean, very often, for instance, drummers feel ignored because they begin the process of making a record. They're finished within the first week, and the album could go on for a month or a year, and they were finished. Mm-hmm. So they get bored. I mean, it's like you know, sitting around and watching after all the time. And... But, you know, if, if they come and they go, I don't like that way that tom roll feels. The first tom needs to be louder. You, you change it. And for them, 
it's a, it makes them buy in because I, I always felt that really when they go out on the road, I want them all to like, when they talk to someone, mm-hmm. they go like, we have a great new album and, you know, this enthusiasm. And if you allow someone who maybe un- unintentionally is bullying the other people, you will, there will be bitterness. And so the esprit de corps is really critical, just like and in so a management team. I think that team. a startup absolutely has that. I also feel that finding startups is, is finding new talent. It's, this, it's not very different than finding new bands or new artists who you think are going to resonate with the public, who have a great idea, who have something special about it. It's interesting, and they are both hits-based businesses, right? Yeah. Where, you know, it's sort of, it's, I mean, the, the returns aren't proportional. It's a tiny amount, of number of the folks kind of have the, the lion's share of the returns. That's right. And so um, I thought that my experience in, you know, managing, you know, sort of excited groups of people that I would have something to offer. And, I'll, you know, I go back, I think I actually learned some of this from my father because he was in a partnership in an advertising firm. And I used to hear about the office politics from him. And I could see that there were, t- I often tell my kids, it's like, do you want to be right or do you want to win? <laughs> yeah, really. I mean, do you want, you know, because there are times when you imagine your, your boss has made a mistake and you point it out or a policeman. And if you keep pointing it out, you may win the argument, but you may go to jail. Who's the warrior? <laughs> it's, it's, it's very interesting. I mean, the whole concept, what you're describing, it sounds like is founders management, founder management. And what's so interesting is, um, you know, even um, there's some talk that um, Mark Andreessen gave, right? You know, the VC and, you know, AI for this, AI for that. And they're like, oh, well, what about AI for your job, Mark? And then he's like, oh, Ma- managing founders, you could never have a computer do that. <laughs> he was saying, you know, <laughs> the, the idiosyncrasies of founders is just requires a particularly special touch. Um, so I think we have an understanding of how you wound up doing healthcare. How um, how did you wind up there? Well, I had ended up being involved with either. I mean, I'm most known for that. I was a co-founder of the company GarageBand.com, which is, as I always have to point out, is not the Apple program. They they <laughs> they licensed the name for us from us. It was the beginning of crowdsourcing, and Apple GarageBand um, worked very hard to have a large uh, audience, which we sent music to for people to comment and rate rate, and. Basically, we had a chart, so to speak, where we had a group, and what rose to the top got a record contract. It's kind of American Idol of, of and we was, yeah. And it was before American yeah. Idol. And they, they, I mean, one thing that American Idol did, that first of all, they had a TV show, but also by doing cover songs, it, the songwriting wasn't part of it. It was merely mm-hmm. the performance mm-hmm. model, and which in a way made it much made it simpler, but in okay. a certain way less interesting. Um, the anyway, so this was. This and the, but I'd also been involved. I've been on the board of directors of a, my friend from Harvard, John Mazur's company, Micro Unity, which is a really amazingly innovative uh, microprocessor design company. He had been a founder of the company MIPS, one of the co-founder with John yeah. Hennessy, former president of Stanford. But he was really the one who led the chip development of what became, with nine people in like nine months, made the world's fastest processor. They were a client of my employer, Regis McKenna. Uh, I remember back when I was just graduating from college, that company was really here. And, and, you know, I I have heard many of the war stories from him of the early days. And um, 
the tussle that can happen between competing competing interests, which often begin begin aligned and then sometimes start to diverge later on. And you have to be very, very careful about this. Can be your investors, it can be your it can even be the the the, the members of the start of the of founders have yeah. it. Um, so I learned a lot about it because that company went through near-death experiences. I'm happy to say that we persevered and we eventually prosecuted patent um, infringement suits and realized nearly three-quarters of a billion, billion dollars. So you were, not, were then kind of a avowed entrepreneur by then. Yes. And you were at a garden party, as I understand it, That's and that was your first healthcare. Uh, That's right, right. So I had a party... And I had recently met a bunch of neuroscientists, and one of them brought a fellow neuroscientist, and we were the neuroscientists frequent garden parties at my at my at my at my, house, at my, at my <laughs> house they do, and 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 I just said, does anyone in this room have a really great idea they haven't done anything with? And a guy said, I do. He goes, I have a treatment for neurotoxic snake bites that could keep people alive. And I said, well, I said, what are you doing with it? He goes, it's just at the back burner. I'm about to f- f- forget about it because I can't figure out how to do anything with it. And I said, if you can keep, save lives, we have to do something. About it. I really thought this was a six-month effort that would be handed to the Gates Foundation on a platter, and then we would feel like we'd done something good for the world. Well, it ended <laughs> up that they weren't – it didn't fit their the purvey of their what they felt their mission was. And then what became obvious to me is like this is a company, it's a company with, as it works out, it's what's called a, a B Corp, a, a public benefit corporation. So it's a, it's sort of an in-between, uh, an NGO and a, uh, but it's a corporation that's going to make money. And But it also taught me the rigors of getting through the FDA so that when Brian started talking to me about Red Crow, he would start talking about a 510K or things like this. And I kind of went... I understand the progression that these companies have to go through. I don't feel completely lost. So, Brian, you guys, you know, you had already now moved over to healthcare with your activities around My Child. You were interested in coming together. How did Red Crow come together? How did you guys form that and why? Well, having, you know, left Morgan Stanley, what I realized pretty quickly was there was this major gap in the funding cycle. And it was not only how do early stage companies get invested when they've hit that, as we call it here, the valley of death where you've done your friends and family, but maybe venture and institution isn't right for you or ready for you. Um, But on the flip side, what I had learned when I left Morgan is that there was this great appetite for early stage investments from accredited um, investors. But where did they go to find these investments? That was the the, the void. So I started watching what was happening with crowdfunding uh, between Kickstarter and Indiegogo and billions of dollars going through that space and these platforms. And after going through the trials of trying to help the fetal monitor company raise money, I had thought how much easier would it have been if this company could have had an online presence and had access to thousands of more investors all over the world, um, like Kickstarter and Indiegogo were doing. But as we know, that was illegal up until the 2012 Jobs Act that the Obama administration put in place. And that's when it hit me that this was a way to democratize how companies raise money and how investors invest. Now, how much of the issue with these early stage companies that you're trying to focus on is sort of getting them the money that you're describing? And how much of it are some of this other than know-how, the sort of things that accelerators, I mean, Lisa's, Lisa's written 
I think all sorts of reviews write about accelerators and everyone has an accelerator now, but they try to bring a lot of um, capabilities or resources, not financial, but other resources, I think it's sometimes financial, sometimes, together. Yeah. Um, is this addressing the core problem or a core problem? In other words, how much of the problem that when you have an, an interesting entrepreneur is the issue, the money, and how much, in other words, is that the best thing you can do or is that, an, is that enough? So, okay, you give someone, you know, crowd's going to fund something. I mean, they still need a space. They, they still need, you know, know-how. They still need some facilities. How do you, it, it, is that enough? Yeah, well, I, I think the biggest challenge, you know, when you hear statistics like nine out of ten companies fail, a lot of times— It sounds low. Yeah, well, <laughs> yeah, we're trying to change that. Maybe that's just your portfolio, David. <laughs> <laughs> well, David, then we should talk. <laughs> um, it, a lot of times, great ideas, great vision, but if there's not money there to support it, they will fail, um, especially in their early days. And then to your point, David, there, it is a lot um, more about about than just the money. And I think the community that Red Crow has created, because we're focused on one niche and one vertical, we're bringing specialists to the table that not only can fund, but they can help advance these companies. They can make the right introductions. They could probably even sit on the board or play an advisory role. And so what really struck me about this opportunity and some of the early platforms that started to pop up was they were putting everything and anything on the, on the site. And as Jerry would say, it's like a phone book of listings. And when we started saying, let's make it very specific and let's get the best of the best, but let's let the crowd play a role in not just investing, but helping us to curate and vet the companies. And a lot of that goes to Jerry's experience at GarageBand where Jerry may have heard music. And Jerry gives a great example where he was listening to all this music and he would throw something aside and say, no, I don't like it. Then he'd start to see these comments about people really liking it. And they may have said, I love the lyrics. And Jerry's like, well, I didn't really listen to the lyrics that close. Let me go back. And what it goes to show is the crowd, the wisdom of the crowd, is smarter than the smartest person. But you have kind of an unusual crowd now. It's not just like the crowd, the open it, the open market. It's really a medical yeah. marketplace between yeah. doctors exactly. and doc- medical entrepreneurs. And I think that this is one of the things that this sort of – we came to this realization a little bit later is that the healthcare startups are at a unique space. A – you know, there's a lot of talk about impact investments or socially responsible investing. Right. And, but a product that makes people, that maybe either cuts down on the cost of healthcare or gets an early warning sign so that you find out about something a little bit earlier or your doctor does, is only, it's financially good for the world, this country, and it's also very good for the health of the, of the patients. It makes the doctor's jobs easier. So all of these innovations, I think, are impact investments. So, A, that we kind of ticked off that box. Mm-hmm. B, who, who would be the most uh, um, knowledgeable early investor in a company? Someone who has gone through medical school, who has gone through, you know, 10 years of training usually to have a very focused and very specific knowledge of what is needed and what would be a good idea. This is where, and also that group also are accredited investors. I think it's really essential to say that we at this point are only accredited investors. So we, though our ideas came from out of the idea of what of the equity crowdfunding and the Jobs Act, we are in some ways a little, we're sort of a hybrid. We're like closer to, we, we need people who 
have the wherewithal to take financial risks and invest in startups. The minimum, our minimum investments are not tiny. You know, so we we don't want to have twenty thousand people on the cap table because they right. invested they hundred, on a hundred dollars. But you have so is the idea that you have a relatively somewhat limited. It's not everyone on the interwebs showing. It's not everyone on the interwebs. We don't up. we don't deny anybody, right. but we've focused. No, on but but there's not a requirement to have. I mean, for example, I could imagine a partnership, for example, with Doximity, right? Yeah. So Doximity, you know, as a I don't have any connection to it. I, you know, I've been to some of their, um, like, I have, I've been an unpaid advisor right. some stuff, um, where, you know, th- they have a listing of everyone who's actually a U.S. doctor, right. something like that. So they, they by, by sort of providing that degree of certification, everyone who's on their platform has that. So I can imagine that that would be sort of a list of people who would be, you know, ideal yeah. for this Well, we've, of, we've had conversations with Doximity. Oh, really? Okay. And but that's sort of but, thing. But, 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 but also, to continue with this model, so you have what I consider like these two triangles, yeah. and we're, there's, a, there's the point of contact, and that's Red Crow. So you have this, and who are also making the inventions? It's usually people within the healthcare field, or if it's an inventor outside the healthcare field, who's the first person he brings into the company? Someone within the healthcare field. Mm-hmm. So you have smart anyway. <laughs> right, because he knows that he's going to have to navigate the FDA, the hospitals, the purchasers, he needs to have someone who has sort of, in, so to speak, industry experience, insider knowledge, whatever you want to. And so, therefore, we have these sort of symmetric, the, the inventors are the best new inventors. The same people that, the, the same group that creates the, the inventors are the same people that be the most knowledgeable early investors. And we think that, the, and we also think that doctors, it's, people often talk about it, are often very unhappy with in their investment strategies because, they're turning it over to someone else, and yet they feel they have all of this knowledge that is theirs that they can't somehow leverage. So we're giving them the ability to leverage their knowledge. I can understand how this sort of approach helps really identify. I mean, I love the idea of lead user approach, of being able to have products vetted or sort of ranked and, and, and enthusiasm expressed by you know, people who are healthcare experts who seem to know a lot about it. But is the idea at the end of the day to have a, I mean, is it sort of a charity? I don't think it is. It's to have like a, you know, a business, right? right. No, yeah. no, sort of, um, Hugh Bryan, is what, while doctors may have a good sense, oh, this sort of thing could be useful, would they have as clear a sense of, oh, there's, there's actually a real business model behind this? Because there are any number of things that in theory sound great that aren't really what I would call investable. Yeah, no, a- absolutely. I think, you know, we tap into the wisdom of the crowd when we talk about, you know, healthcare professionals, but there's a lot of uh, finance people that focus on healthcare that know how to look at these things. And so that's why when we say it's a wisdom of the crowd, it really is beyond healthcare. It could even be patient, patient advocates. It could be family foundations. And then outside of that, you know, Red Crow has its own due diligence team, folks from the Cleveland Clinic that play in the role, and we have two analysts. So we are looking at these companies as, is there a return on the investment? And that's the biggest thing for me coming out of Morgan Stanley. It's not charity. And we want the crowd to also say, one, this is bogus science, and we don't know that a Theranos would have gotten through our platform. I mean, that's a whole other conversation. But also- It's only is, a half hour show. Yeah, is there a return here <laughs> as an, for an investor? I mean, that's, it. you know, go on Kickstarter Indiegogo if you want to make a feel-good investment or make a, you know, do some philanthropic this is all about investing for a future return and to find alpha in your portfolio that you might not be getting at your brokerage or your financial advisor. 
So you guys, um, in addition to the um, the crowdsourcing focus of Red Crow, have a vision also to amplify the music as medicine concept. What are you thinking about that? Well, I'll, I'll let Jerry talk a little bit about it, but you know, there's been this real commonality between um, physicians and musicians, and the way that their minds work. And, and, and what we've realized is music transcends into medicine. And you know, we had a, um, a webinar with Dr. Frank Pepe, who did the face transplant. And he was our first music and medicine guest. And so this is a new segment that we've put together, where at the end, we ask the physician, the clinician, the entrepreneur to talk about music and how it inspires them. And there's so many uh, commonalities that we really can't get into today. But um, one thing that music motivates people, it brings people together. And I think we started to talk a little bit about this. For Jerry to identify a good artist in the past, he's now looking at some of the same traits that you would look at in a musician as in an entrepreneur. I think that it's a little bit of a light. It's also a lighthearted thing. I think that we have... We are filled with things that are trying to be serious 100% of the time. Mm-hmm. And I think that in, in an age of competing sources of your, for your attention, that also finding out if you're listening to someone and there's a film about them or particularly in a podcast or something like that, if you talk about something that seems outside of what the specific specificity of their specialty and music's a very good one because almost everybody has some feeling or, or, or love of music. And hearing about someone else's passion, it, ate, it makes them more real to you. It makes them, you, you see, it's sort of, you see them, I mean, it's sort of like, I mean, you, another one example would be is like, I would never have expected that Frank Poupet isn't a Browns fan. He's a Pittsburgh fan. How can you dare be a, you know, I mean, it's like sports can do that too. It's like you're talking about something that, you wouldn't expect to be talking to your doctor about it. and yet it makes them human and real. Yeah, yeah. And it makes the entrepreneurs, it makes the people of the companies go, like, I, li- I like this guy, and I, I'm, 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 or I like this woman, I like this. Uh, uh, so I think it's... Um, it visually speaks to an underlying commonality. Yeah, there's also the, emo- you know, music sort of speaks to the emotions directly. So is there a talking head song that's most relevant to entrepreneurs? Well, probably Burning Down the House. Watch <laughs> <laughs> Definitely not Road to Nowhere. And, I, <laughs> and I'm certainly hoping it's not just once in a lifetime. Yeah, really. Yeah, really. How did I get here? So, Brian, just for you, I know there's also a song that's really meaningful to you, and you've talked about how much of a role serendipity has played in the evolution of your career. You have a song that exemplifies your advice to entrepreneurs. Yeah. Can you talk about yeah, that? I, I, yeah, I sure can. So Jerry and I have been asked over the last several years when we do an interview, you know, do we have advice for entrepreneurs? And Jerry, uh, as I say, always gives sort of that more experienced, fatherly advice to entrepreneurs of, you know, save your money, be careful how you spend it, don't commit to an expensive lease. And I go a little more philosophical um, because I've lived it, and that's, I say, burn your ships. 
you know, when the Vikings got to shore, they took over the land, but they burnt their ships knowing there was no option to go back out. I thought that was Cortez. Was it the Vikings too? I don't know. Well, <laughs> it works both ways, I, I, I suppose. But, um, and, and I mean it. You know, when I talk to the entrepreneurs about that, you've got to be all in. You can't have a part-time job that you think, well, if this doesn't work, especially when you start taking money from investors. And so that's been my philosophy for a while now. And I think even with, you know, deciding to have more children after what we've been through, you burn your ships, you're going to go for it, you know, and that can really pertain to a lot of things in life. So we were at this meeting and Jerry asked if he could step away um, because there was a band in town. Charlie Colin from the band Train had put together a new um, group and wanted to talk to Jerry about producing. And I'm like, Jerry, you know what? You got to take these meetings still because that's his passion and things that Jerry still has to be involved with. Um, and so he did. And then I ended up going and meeting up with the group later and super guys. And it's a band called The Side Deal. Which played at the Startup Health Festival at J.P. Morgan. They sure did. Yeah, with Jerry, with Jerry and, 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 and Aislinn. Uh, and Aislinn, yeah. And so um, and they had showed up at the Cleveland Clinic this past fall. But anyways, we're leaving and Stan Frazier, the, the, the drummer who was originally with Sugar A, hands us a CD, a demo, and says, guys, you, want, you know, Harry, you can take a listen. So we fly from LAX. We land in SFO. We're about to get on the highway, and I said, Jerry, you have that, that CD? And he's like, yeah, I want me to put it in. And so Jerry puts it in, and we, we see come up on the screen, third song down is a song called Burn the Ships. And I said to Jerry, I'm like, Jerry, I don't know anything about this band, but I think you got to produce them. And, and so I wrote the guys when I got back this story, you know, and how this all tra- played out. And Stan wrote me back. He's like, Brian, we all read it together as a band. We all started crying. And we can't <laughs> wait to- Was the song any good? Yeah. song's actually great, really good. Actually. Very good, yeah. yeah. Well, this, you guys, this has been super fun. Thank you so much for being here today. Pleasure. We're Pleasure. excited Lisa, to see uh, Red Crow unfold. Great. So. Good. Good. Thank you. Thank you. Sometimes I feel like I'm in this alone. These walls we're building don't feel like a home. Today's guests were Brian Smith and Jerry Harrison, co-founders of Red Crow, a healthcare crowdfunding platform that seeks to maximize both technological and social innovation. Such an unlikely pair, and yet they appear to be making beautiful music together on the medical and crowdfunding front. All right. Well, I thought that was really interesting. I mean, there are so many parts that were interesting, but um, when Jerry was talking about how you can have people who are different, but for a common topic, it doesn't have to be music, but music's such a great one. As trite as it sounds, it really resonates, and it's such a cool feeling when all of a sudden people who, again, like you've described, people who who you might not have even seen in a particular mm-hmm. light, it turns out, oh, they have this secret passion, like he, like he was describing of someone for Led Zeppelin, for mm-hmm. somebody. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I agree. I mean, I think one of the reasons these guys are so interesting to work around is because they're so um, holistic and they're thinking about people and the conversations are fluid around whether it's business or healthcare or music or performing or families or what. It's just a very different kind of experience than you often get, you know, in your day-to-day business engagements. Yeah, It's a wonderful and very personal, personable and personal thing. Yeah, it's terrific and I like what they're doing. Um, it'll be really interesting to see how it goes. Um, you can follow Lisa Sunin at VentureValkyrie.com. And you can follow David's writing at Forbes. We are grateful to GE Ventures for their sponsorship today. GE Ventures, multiple paths to big impact. Please remember to rate us on iTunes and leave a comment to help others discover the show. We'll Take be care. out burning down the house. So let's burn the ships down into dust. Tell everybody not to everybody.